0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com.
1: Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Uh, Today on the program, uh, Max Linsky talked to David Grant.
0: So for anyone who doesn't know who David is, he is a staff writer at The New Yorker. He's also an author of The Lost City of Z, which actually grew out of a New Yorker story about the Amazon. And he has a collection, The Devil and Sherlock Holmes. All of us are huge
1: fans. Uh, it, it would be almost fair to say this entire podcast was one long con for us to get to talk to David Grant, which actually Max was the one who got to do, <laughs> Evan and I are. I've been pissed off about. <laughs> I'll just stop there, right. um, and I think we should probably just uh, let you take it away. I'm here with David Graham at the offices of the New Yorker. David, thank you very much for uh, for sitting down with us. I appreciate oh, it. Happy to do it. I'd like to talk to you about sort of where you started, and um, I'm interested not just in uh, where you got your journalistic start, but where you got your writing start. Mm-hmm. Um, were you, you know, were you like the uh, elementary school kid putting out his own newspaper?
2: No, I wasn't. Um, no, my my mother was in publishing, uh, and so I definitely grew up around authors. Um, I think I was probably babysat at one point by Judy Bloom, which is probably a uh, unusual distinction, and um, and so I was often around authors, so they were you know part of my upbringing in terms mm-hmm. of um, being exposed to them, and I wrote some, you know, I kept a journal. Um, I think the interest developed more keenly probably in college, and uh, at that point. Um, I started to write more. I still don't do too much for the student newspaper. Mm -hmm. And I really wasn't sure kind of what form.
1: Yeah, I mean, what kind of stuff are you writing? I wrote bad
2: poetry. (laughs) I wrote um, some bad fiction. And then I wrote, you know, opinion pieces and and, and various things, and essays and political essays. Do you still
1: have any of your bad poetry lying around? Probably
2: buried somewhere in an attic, and hopefully my wife will never find it.
1: Uh, And so, I mean, when you when when you were in college, where'd you go to school? I went to Connecticut College. And when you were in school, my mother
2: went to Connecticut. Oh, really? In New London? Um, She
1: uh, she does not have strong alumni ties.
2: She does not. She does not. Um,
1: But when you were there, when you were in college, what where where were you thinking you'd end up? What was the plan?
2: You know, um, I was not a person who. I was pretty directed. I wasn't directed in high school. I was pretty directed in college in the sense that I, at at that point, had kind of a great curiosity about things, and I read intensely, Um, but I did not have such a plan, Um, uh, and I ended up taking a very meandering path towards journalism. I think like a lot of people who start out in writing, you have this urge, um, and you have this desire, you have this longing to kind of do it, but it's so hard to say how do I actually become a writer and, and, and who will actually ever pay me to do this and how would I ever support myself. And, you know, that was a struggle for me that went from college all the way, you know, uh, into my late 20s mm-hmm. as I struggled to find a way, uh, one, what kind of writing I wanted to do and two, you know, how do you kind of do this. Um, Interesting enough, it was when I graduated college, I had a fellowship uh, to Mexico and, um, at Thomas Watson Fellowship, and I was doing research there. And what were you doing research on? It was, um, uh, I was living with four families. I was somewhat anthropological. I was living with four families of different socioeconomic backgrounds. It was right at the time, uh, it was 1990 at the time uh, when Mexico was transitioning from a one-party state. And so I lived with each one of these families to document uh, the impact of the changing political situation. And that was really my first though, and that I both, l- l- it gave me a period of time uh, of intensive both reading, um, because I was reading intensively and I, I started to read all the fiction I hadn't read in college. And then I also began writing more intensively and I wrote in two forms. I it was my first real journalism experience. Uh, yeah, there was a there was a magazine which no longer exists, uh, published out of Mexico City, and it was published by La Jornada, which probably still does exist, was a large uh, uh, Mexican daily. But they had an English uh, 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 weekly magazine. What was it called? I, I think it was called the Mexico Journal. Again, it, it's probably <laughs> with a bad poetry somewhere in a, in a box, and um, and. I lived outside of Mexico City. I lived in a, a place called Puebla, and uh, um, you know.
1: And so you'd go from Puebla to these other families.
2: Yep, yeah. and yeah. I was yep, yeah. and then I would find stories that I could report on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it be some political thing, demonstration, or some cultural phenomenon. Uh, but they're still like uh, you're still writing for the magazine, not for the daily newspaper. It was for the magazine. Yeah, it was for a magazine because uh, it was in English and right. and. and um, and, you know, I had a little typewriter and, uh, you know, I, I don't even remember what they paid me. It was negligible. It probably paid my travel back and forth because it was pre-internet days and it was pre-where uh, I was living often. There, there also weren't the kind of modes of communication. So I would type these stories up on an old typewriter, uh, print them out, and then take buses, take a bus. And I would take a bus to Mexico City um, and then I would hand deliver my... <laughs> my manuscript to them and then you know they would kind of do with it what they would, and you know there wasn't even that kind of communication where they would even send me the edits. Yeah, you just you just see it when it I'd came out. I would leave it with it then I'd look for the <laughs> magazine, and then I would get back. But it was also nice; gave me an excuse to go to Mexico City and I'd go see an American film, and get a right. nice, nice mail and then and, and then head back. But that was my first real uh, journalism experience. And, and you, were, it, I
1: mean, and you and you were just winging it. I mean, were, were you no Pitching stories to the editor? How, like,
2: yeah, I would I would pitch. I mean, you know, to be honest, I mean. You you know, there probably weren't too many correspondents where I was for them. And and um, I wrote. In, you could write in English. And, you know, they rewrote me a lot and, you know, made it more journal. You know, I didn't have a lot of experience with journalism. Um, and I didn't do it so often that it was hard to come up with ideas. But, yeah, I would pitch to them. And whenever I would come in to deliver my piece, I would – before I went out into the field, I met with them. And they said, you know, we'll take a look at what you do. Mm-hmm. And so it was a kind of an on-spec relationship and, and – and, if they, I, I think they accepted most of the pieces. I think one of them they didn't accept, and um, you know, I get my hundred bucks. But no, probably it was hundred bucks, probably twenty bucks. I don't know what it <laughs> was. Uh, in any case, you know, enough for the bus ride back. Could you feel yourself getting better? I could, I could. I, I still, you know, I didn't really feel like I got better till later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still felt like then I was really green, and and um, I think if anything. Less getting better than overcoming the fear of doing something new. Uh, so, I think in that sense, it was helpful that I was like, at least gain the confidence that I could go out and talk to people and and and, and write something up and have it have a shape and, and, and that it would have an outcome.
1: And so, you'd never done reporting before, right? No, no. So, I mean, you, you're just winging it. I was winging, it. winging I know, it. Yeah, I was winging and, it. And totally fluent Spanish, so walking into these houses and communities white guy from Connecticut walking into these, these <laughs> families without any Don't real...
2: categorize me. <laughs> so, I'm
1: sorry. I'm sorry. A, just a guy from Connecticut, man. Just a guy. Just I a guy. <laughs> um, and, and how did people respond to you? Uh, I
2: mean, ha- they were pretty receptive. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I would explain to them what I was doing. And, and I think, you know, you encounter, as with anyone, some people are more dubious and some people are happy to share their stories. Um, uh I tend to be a fairly disarming presence as a um and uh, I think that part of getting people to chat was was um not not so difficult i mean i think there, there was both the added advantage and the oddity of like what is this dude doing here mm-hmm. from uh, another country asking me these questions, which both... This some,
1: non-categorized y- dude. Yeah,
2: this non-categorized And I think in some cases it probably added to suspicion, and in some cases it made it much safer because they just kind of felt like, you know, we're, uh, clearly he's not, you know, a spy for the government.
1: <laughs> You're talking about being a disarming presence. I mean, I, I assume that that is still part of how you report. Uh, it's an advantage in your reporting is it something that you've sort of honed how do you how do you continue to be a disarming presence when you're writing for the new yorker or the new yeah. york
2: times well i think you know you you get better at these things i mean the stereotype um i always had was the stereotype you know from these old movies of you know aggressive reporters you know shouting on the phone and you know you know tell me this or or um, you know f- you know staking out houses and and um, you know that that just never really fit my personality I, I can be uh, um, I don't want to say socially phobic but I can I, I, I can be averse to those uh, situations and um, um, I think the thing I learned over time though is that you don't really necessarily need that to be successful um, and um, I think the thing that I have tried to do, but it's been an evolution because my understanding of reporting has really changed and the way I report has really changed. I mean the both the stories I'm allowed to write about now I, I mean I could never write about these things before when I started out. I mean, you know, I went from Mexico to writing obituaries and covering high school graduations for the Stanford Advocate. So, you know, you, you know. That was your next job after I did an internship but eventually there. And I just, you know, again, I just, people told me to try to get clips. And that was always in the back of my mind. How can I get clips? Mm -hmm. So I would just try to get clips. And I would, you know, offer my services where I could to get them. and, And so, you know, the way you report when you're covering a high school graduation to the way I report now is just totally different. And were you, I mean,
1: at, sc- at that point, were you, were you, did you have magazines in mind? I mean, did you want to be writing longer stuff? Or were you like writing the hell out of those high school graduation stories? I,
2: I was never a great newspaper reporter and I did not do that much of it. Um, I was never that great. I'm, I'm, I tend to be uh, slow, um, but more than that, um, maybe because I never had the training I never really kind of... Like, the whole inverted pyramid thing and the whole nut graph thing are just, like, anathema to me. Right. And so, like, the whole idea of, like, just get it up top, you know, and I would write, you know... I would just kind of write it the way I would tell a story a little bit. I guess I had that instinct in me a little bit even even then. And so... Um, I just would always just admire these my colleagues who would just you know without a sweat and they would just bang these things out and they would get the news up and you know I would turn in my copy and the editors would be like taking my last graph and making it the first graph and I was like oh okay <laughs> um, and so you know it was a, it was a, it was a learning process and I I um, I was not a I don't think I was a natural. I mean, I have such admiration. I was not a natural newspaper reporter. Now, I suppose had I ended up working at a daily, a major daily, and doing it, you know, maybe I would have become one. I mean, career paths take paths that are not... I mean, I'm always impressed when people kind of say, this is what I want to do, and they end up there. Um, I had no idea when I began where I would end up. I, I really didn't. And... and um, you end up taking jobs because those are the jobs you get, and they end right. up shaping what you do. I mean, my first real journalism job was at the Hill newspaper, mm-hmm. and that was the first kind of full-time. Um, everything else I'd done on the side while I was doing other things right. and getting clips or, and often working for free. And... Um, and, you know, getting graduate degrees to postpone things and try to find ways to write or get fellowships. You got a show. couple of those, right? Got a couple of those because it's just a way of saying I have no idea what the hell I want to do or how I'm going to do it. Right. And, uh, and um, you know, I went ended up covering politics. And, um, you know, why did I cover Capitol Hill? People were like, you know, you must just love Congress. I said, no, that was just the place that I got a job. and, and were you,
1: I mean, so, so you went and got these degrees. One of them was in, one of them was a writing degree. One of right? them was a
2: creative writing degree. Okay.
1: And was, were you writing fiction in that program? That was fiction in the program, yes. And were you, I mean, so when you get out of that program, you start looking for jobs, that you're applying to one at the Hill. Is the hope that, like, uh, journalism will let you pursue your fiction career? Probably.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's probably right. I mean, I, I, I what happened to me again it was an evolutionary process where um I knew I wanted to write, and I knew I like writing nonfiction, too. I mean, I knew I wanted to write, um but I didn't always figure out the form and i I was not very good at fiction. I mean i I had limitations, and it, it was only a, a, as a process, and you know, I always think I'm a little bit dense because. Maybe had I gone to school or, or read more of, of a lot of these writers, I would have realized that wow, you can really write nonfiction um, in a way that is you know about storytelling and about character and about scenes and about setting, and and not only that, it ended up solving all my weaknesses as a fiction writer, which was I really had a trouble you know creating make believe characters um, and kind of. You know all the process of limitations of the imagination, or even if I had the good imagination, somehow rendering it. Um, you know, the 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 step of not being able to witness something, mm-hmm. um, and and just trying to imagine it to the page. First, being able to witness something for me, um, and being able to imagine the page, and 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 being able to find the character that's real and breathing, and you know, like a squid hunter or just right. these wonderful characters, and 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 just. You know, that, that solved that problem, and uh, you know now I'm so kind of happy where I am at. And when you
1: started doing those longer pieces, did it feel closer to what you wanted to be doing?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I mean, you know, again, I uh, when I first went to the New Republic, I was uh, still in the kind of like kind of opinion reporting kind of phase or analytical kind of writing. I, I've never been a strong like uh, pundit kind of person, so they were always deeply reported, but but. And then gradually, like just my instincts, and so, you know, I, you know, when I discovered that, you know, uh, congressman traffickant, you know, turned out to be, um, you know, allegedly, you know, tied to to mobsters and and. And then was you know being investigated, and he had this unbelievable hair, which at the time I didn't realize was a toupee. <laughs> but it was authentic. I was one of the great discoveries of my life when I discovered that was not real. How'd you find that? Out? Well, I just thought like when he went to jail, they took it off, and it turned out he was he, he had a toupee. I just didn't think anyone would ever get a toupee that bad. So I thought like <laughs> I just thought if you're gonna get a toupee, you, like nobody would ever get a toupee that looked like a toupee like right. that badly. So yes. I was just think he fooled me with that one. But um, in any case, and and then I, I remember the discovery when I. Was researching that story, for example. So and,
1: just for yeah. people listening, that, that story, Crime Town USA, is about the, the sort of mob in Youngstown.
2: Yes, yeah. about the mobbed-up town in Youngstown and, uh, you know, one of the most murderous places in the U.S., one of the most mobbed-up places. I mean, the head of the mafia used to literally go to the—the the, the guys from the police would come to his house and say, you know, and the head of the mob would literally pick— who was going to be the police officers. He would literally go down the list. I oh, want him, him, him. I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's a place where, like, the... the the I mean, the, the Congressman uh chief of staff, I believe that was his title. It's been a while since that story. Uh, but he was the bag man. He was the bag yeah. man for the mob. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And you had, like, you know, you had the prosecutors. You had you had the defense attorneys. You had the police force. I mean, everybody was, you know, was just incredibly mobbed up. Yeah,
1: it, it reads like a movie,
2: that yeah. story. Yeah, I mean, it was like one of the last kind of truly mobbed up places, totally mob run. And um, how do you find that
1: and and how had the definitive trafficant
2: story not been written? Like how? Yeah, I d- well I, I I don't remember where the origins of that story came about to be honest a long time ago. I mean at the time trafficant was beaking the news because there were these reports that trafficant was being investigated mm-hmm. for uh, you know, tax issues and various things. And one of the things I gradually learned through this and other stories is that journalists, because of the nature of the game often has very short historical span and we tend to move on. And when I began I probably just read something about that and began to look into it. And you start to realize that the honorable gentleman from Ohio has this extraordinarily past, and in fact had been indicted, you know, more than twenty some odd years ago, and when he and had been defended, sheriff and, for, defended and defended himself for for allegedly taking bribes, <laughs> and he had been chased to turned out by basically one FBI agent for ages. And but one of the discoveries, what for me was that I went to the old courthouse and I dug up, tried to dig up the old records, and I found a transcript of that wiretap. With, he had made with the crabs, when he had been, um, you know, allegedly taking these bribes, because one of them was wearing a wire or had been tape recording the, the conversation, apparently out of self preservation, and um, and when I read that and I just saw that dialogue and it just. Kind of leapt off the page, and it was you know it was about a hundred pages of this yeah. transcript. I just thought this is unbelievable. I mean, here is the Honorable Gentleman of Ohio saying basically, you know, I mean, the things he was saying on there from the the floridness of the language, which I can't be repeated now, to even talking about threats. I mean, and I just was kind of blown away, and and it was also the dialogue, the way people talk, the authenticity of the way people talk. Um, as opposed to the way politicians so often talk um, where they're so self-conscious of the words right. and and suddenly just that kind of thing that kind of discovery is what began me looking more for these stories and, and paying more attention to voice and character um, because I was like this when nobody was thought they were being recorded this was how they were talking
1: mm-hmm. so looking for those moments of authenticity but it's also looking for those breakthrough moments with stories right? yeah and, how, I mean, how far How far do you go down the line looking for something like that? How, you know, how many stories – I assume there are several stories that you work on for a while and then decide it's not all there. Does that happen?
2: All the time. I mean, I, I, I try to be – I think um, I try to collect a lot of potential ideas for things and then – I will usually spend several weeks, I and mean, I don't want to spend. Ideally, it's not. Um, you know, they're disincentives financially to spend a year researching a story and then have it go nowhere. So I try to be um, somewhat ruthless early on, uh-huh. but I also am, I think, ruthless about not doing a story if I don't think it's good. So I I really try to spend a couple weeks, really. Pre-reporting a story and and getting a sense, uh, you know, at a certain point you always roll the dice with a story because you're never going to know what's going to happen. A lot of these stories, I are are things unfolding. Uh, you know, if you go with a giant squid hunter, I have no idea what we're going to find. You just basically roll the dice and you and you and you don't know how that story is going to turn out. Or when you go in the Amazon, you have no idea what you're going to find and so there's always an element of of unknowability but you want to at least i want to try to figure out that there are basic certain basic ingredients or basic elements is probably the better word basic elements right. to the story that seem to be there and, and so what, I, what
1: are those ingredients I mean, what are you looking for
2: well um i would say one el- one element is um you have uh a character or mm-hmm. some characters. Um, I usually look for subcultures or some world that the story is going to bring me into that's unfamiliar, that it's going to let me in. So when I had the idea about the prison gangs, um, uh, you know, I had read that they were arresting people in jail, and I just thought, wow, that's so weird. They're arresting people in jail, and they're already in jail. <laughs> right. And it was just, I remember reading that, that was literally like a two-sentence, just brief. But mm-hmm. I just thought... Ah, huh, that's so curious. And then I thought,, um, even though we all know prison gangs exist and we all have these images in our brain, have you ever actually forensically known how does these gangs actually operate? like how do you create an empire in a prison environment. Right. And I thought, wow, if I could peel that back. So I, kinda, I guess to some degree they begin with questions. Mm-hmm. But if I can peel that back, if I can find a way in, I thought that's pretty interesting. It's a world we don't normally see. Um,
1: How do you, you find a way into the Aryan Brotherhood? That
2: one was hard. Um, I, did, I There were two major breakthroughs. One was, um, uh, well, there were, there were a few. One, um, the prosecutor on the case was cooperative with me mm-hmm. uh, and was willing to speak with me. Uh, which was uh, a big, uh, a big element. Um, the second element was I was able to find the the leading defector from the gang who had more death threats on him, and in fact. It was incredibly hard to find him. Nobody would tell me because he was in the version of the witness protection program again, you know like a witness protection program right. in prison, but he was he was he was not listed on any prison role you couldn 't go to the Bureau of prisons. he was like a john doe he was not he didn't he was a ghost prisoner and um, but still in prison but still in prison and I eventually got a um, uh, i got to be careful yeah. somebody somebody uh, in a government position was helpful to me and eventually um, helped me um, figure out uh, where this prisoner was. And I remember I called the prisoner to say, you know, can I speak with, with this person? Can I speak with this prisoner? And they said, you know, they quickly, I don't remember exactly what they said, but basically he's not here, we can't help you. And then the person who had been helping me called me back up and said, they think you're, you're coming in, to, they're, they're moving the prisoner out. They think you're a sleeper like you're coming yeah. in to take them out and uh, and then this person who helped me explain to the prison no, I really was what I said, and eventually I was allowed to meet this person so he that was just you know I met him be, be behind glass he's mm-hmm. not a, i mean he, he killed a lot of people i mean he had, he was a killer um who had an odd moral compass for a killer, but he was a killer with a with an odd moral compass of defecting because he he disagreed when the gang started just killed what he considered innocence and um how many conversations did you have with them? Well, one conversa- uh, two conversations in the prison, I believe. Again, it's been a while. And then we corresponded a lot. We mm-hmm. began to correspond, and that was very helpful. And then another key element is you just try to figure out ways. And um, you know, one way in was that I looked up old cases that had already been prosecuted. And often you could find testimony or transcripts uh, where, where people had revealed things. So there, it became kind of a mix of all these different things. Yeah, and so so one of the ingredients
1: is you're looking for a subculture or a world that hasn't really been explored. I
2: think so. I mean, it's some element of curiosity. I mean, it, because each story is a little bit different, but often there's some world I don't I don't know about. Often I'm trying to. I think a good example, probably an easier example to talk about, would be the giant squid because mm-hmm. that's like a kind of a classic example where you get an idea and you're like, well, how the hell would I tell that story? So. Uh, when I was looking for that idea, someone actually told it to me, a friend told it to me as a joke, almost like I was looking for a story. He said, i ah, will do something on the giant squid. No one's ever found the giant squid. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I just had this idea in my brain from 20,000 leagues under the sea. Right. I didn't even know. And he said, no, it's true that no giant squid had ever been captured or documented by alive." And I started to do research, and I found out that, sure enough, that was true, that there were these incredibly almost monstrous-like species that – had tentacles that could stretch to 60 feet long, that had eyes the size of hood caps, you know, they're as long as busts and things, and yet we knew they existed because dead ones had been seen, and there had been fables about them or s- s- stories about them at sea, but no scientist had ever been able to find one or document one alive. And I thought, wow, that's incredible. Um, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. And then I thought, but how the hell do you tell that story, right? Yeah, right. You know, you've just got a mysterious animal that no one's ever seen. You could write an interesting science paper about it but how are you going to write a narrative about it and then i did more research and then i found out lo and behold there were scientists who actually chased the giant squid so i thought okay well now we have a human element and so then i began to call all the different squid hunters and these guys were like ahab and they all had different methods and you know spear a wheel or something i mean they all had these crazy ideas of how to do it and so then i started to talk to them and so then you go through another process again this isn't like covering a news event where you just have to you have to just say, um, this happened on this day. I'm looking to figure out how could I tell this story? And so I call the squid hunters and I part of that process to figure out who's the most, kind of who's really interesting. And the second element of it is just practical. Who's going out? Right. Who's gonna go out? Who could I, because I don't wanna, re, if I can't help it, you want action in a story and you want motion. And, you know, ideally you want to go with somebody and watch what they do. And going back to your question about being disarming, my favorite kind of reporting now is where I almost don't really even talk to the person. Mm -hmm. I just go with them and I just hang out and I just watch what they do and let them slip into the way they they would be. Um, Remove the self-consciousness of the process. And... Uh, so once I found this wonderful uh, uh, squid hunter in in, in New Zealand, yeah. who said, "Come on down, mate! You know we'll make history." You know, I set off. Of course, then everything went wrong, but it was kind of disastrous. And that and that was also a. But so at that point, though, when I rolled the dice, what did I have? I felt like I had a great character. Mm-hmm. I had this. Uh, and
1: what, what do you look when you call these squid hunters? Is there something? Is it uh, is it like an ephemeral quality? Is there something yeah, you specific? Kinda, I think you, you just, just know when
2: you're at a dinner table, you just know who's a yeah. great character, right? right. I mean, you just he's 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 and and some stories you don't for something like that. Um, if you're doing a story that has moral import, or, um, you know, you don't pick your character, you don't you. It doesn't matter whether there's a good character or not. So again, this 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 process is a little bit different. If you're covering a story about was an innocent man possibly executed in Texas, you do that story whether the person is a great character or not you're yeah. going to do that story right because you, it's just too important so but something like this where you know you're like who's going out who's really interesting uh, you know it's like if you're saying I want to profile a baseball player you don't want to you, you, there may be the best pitcher on the team but all he does is say the stupidest most boring right. vapid things why would I cover him as opposed to the guy who you know maybe he's a little less good, but blew out his arm and is trying to make it back and turns out to be deeply philosophical or introspective. Like, you know, you choose that. Um, And, um, but, so you had, I had elements and I had, you had tension, Mm -hmm. you know, you had a tension, which is, uh, are we going to, You know, find this thing. I kind of oversold that story to my editors. We're going to make history. (laughs) We're going to, you know, I was going to make history. Yeah, we're going to. I'm going to be We're going to. You know, because I'm trying to persuade them to send me to New Zealand. Right. And uh, (laughs) and I probably oversold that story, and then everything went wrong. But that was a really good case where it's also really important not to lock in on a story, not to have a preconceived narrative or even if you... Not to
1: decide what's going to happen before it happens. Yeah,
2: and even if you have a preconceived narrative to just be willing to go where the story takes you and the truth takes you. And that was a case where... I was convinced we were going to get the squid, and I had imagined the end, right? I mean, this right. is – we're going out on an odyssey, and the odyssey, of course, is to find he, – he had this idea he was going to capture a baby squid, grow it in captivity. And so what's the end? The end is we get the baby, and he grows it. I mean, that's just the logical in your mind. You're like, that's the Hollywood version of that story. Of course, we get out there. You know, he's got no money. He's like Ahab. He's, 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 you know, he's, he's basically bankrupted his family looking for the baby squid. And then it turns out there's, there's like a cyclone. And he says, We, we still got to go out because if we don't go out now, they don't, you know, this is the only time apparently you can capture the baby squid. Who knew? And they only come out at night. Right. So we got to go out at night and we're on this little boat and we're in this chute. And like, suddenly we're in like these 25 foot waves. And you're just like, Holy shit. And this guy's <laughs> out of his mind. And we're going to to go down and, and and then of course then he puts me to work because he's got no crew because he's got no money and so I mean I'm a wimp and we're like pulling these things I'm just like totally monotonous from like six you know you're like this romantic vision like basically from 6 p.m. until 5 a.m. all I'm doing is pulling nets it's like you know with a little recorder in my pocket occasionally taking notes and um and we just keep doing this and we never get it and we never get it. And then finally after like bleary eyed after like six days of this, you know, six nights of this, you know, we think we capture it and mm-hmm. we can see it and we have to transfer it to a special contraption, a container he's made, but the seas are still rough and as we're transferring it, suddenly it's it's it, it, it disappears. And and I and Shay, who I who I deeply like, I mean, I just never saw a look of such despair on his face when when he says you know where to go where to go and he just said it's all bloody ruin and it was like a whole man's life was basically coming apart as I watched him in that moment and all I could think about is you know I'm dead like I I sold this story we were, we had the baby we lost it like it's not even like it's like it's like how do you even write that like yeah. it's not even like you we didn't get it it's like we had it we lost <laughs> it we just looked like total fools yeah. and like and like how do you and i remember thinking just this is this is a disaster i mean the yeah. story is a disaster and and it, it took me a while to realize in fact he went back out i didn't go out with him the next night i was just like i can't take this anymore <laughs> and he and then he came back and i didn't even know you didn't even have to say i could just tell he hadn't gotten it again yeah. and and I realized it was only in thinking about it that that really was the way the story that moment had such power and, um, and that,
1: I, that dawned on you there wasn't like on the flight home or something I,
2: I think it was when he came back the next day and yeah. I kind of looked at his face and it started to just occur to me I was like wait a second like th- this like here is this man who's sort of been te- deeply obsessed and been looking for this thing and here it had eluded him again and it had been so close and suddenly like the pathos of that and the tragedy of that had such great resonance and meaning and so you know part of, part of the process I think is is just kind of learning to go where the truth is and, 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 and go where the truth is and, and just be flexible and, and usually the truth is so much more interesting I think I mean you know I find that always the case but usually the truth is just it's always surprising I'm always oddly surprised
1: how does that relate to the last story you did, the the Yankee coming the, the story of William Morgan? He's a guy, American guy who goes to Cuba and fights with Castro in the revolution. I mean, that one of the rare stories completely based in history, right? There's mm-hmm. there's, there's very few people to talk to. <laughs> um, what what was the impetus there? How, how did that how did that story come about, and and, and how does that relate to what you're saying about uh, wanting to be kind of a fly on the wall?
2: yeah um and I, my pieces didn't often have a lot of history in them I've always been interested in history and they often have a reconstructive element in them um you know when I did the 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 book on Percy Harrison Foster disappeared in the Amazon um, uh, there was a lot of kind of biographical and original research and and, and getting into primary materials a little bit again. There is a real excitement, like finding the transcript with Traffikant and finding somebody's letters. I still get the the, the, – there's still a great thrill to that kind of discovery. I kind of believe – I just – ultimately, I'm drawn to stories. And so time is irrelevant to me in a way. I mean, I feel like we have the trappings or the confines of time. Like what happened today somehow has – because of the newness – we give it extra value, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a fresh a newness and then it's a kind of an urgency and immediacy to it. But the truth is, great stories happen at all different times, and their greatness hasn't changed, and sometimes they're even greater. And so this was a case where I was in Ohio, and somebody had mentioned to me who we went traveled to Cuba about this guy from Ohio who um, fought in the Cuban Revolution. I said, "Huh, oh, that's kind of interesting." And this was one of those ones where I just kind of filed it away. Yeah, I mean, did you hear about it years ago? How did that? Yeah, I heard about it uh, probably uh, two mm-hmm. or two or three years ago, mm-hmm. and um, maybe at least maybe two years ago. Again, it's uh, um, two and a half years ago, and um, I started to do some research on it and found there were impediments uh, to trying to tell it, um, and but it kind of just didn't. I didn't let go of me, the idea. I mean, why did this guy end up in the Cuban Revolution? And so then I began a process. This is a p- one where I began a process of amassing materials while working on other stories because mm-hmm. the question of what you said is, like, how would you tell the story reconstructively? And so there were several elements. One was foying. All yeah. It turned out he had been, you know, investigated by the FBI, CIA, Secret Service. So I did FOIs of all these agencies, and that process— you know by the time I got all the documents and everything it was a process that lasted over a year mm-hmm. and um and then finding um uh, people who are still alive, including his widow and and was
1: it hard to find olga uh
2: it wasn't that hard to find Olga, but Olga was originally a bit hesitant to to talk and it took a little while um, for her to feel comfortable and um and she was wonderful and i have all the characters I've ever written about, and I just adore her, and she's just got a uh, uh, I mean, just talk about a story to tell, and and uh, um, a person who's been through so much, and yet still kind of has a remarkable uh, outlook on the world, and so that was one of those stories where I feel very blessed in that there, there it turned out there were a lot of people alive. Who still actually knew Morgan and you know people really close to him they were in their 70s and 80s and even in the process from when I began reporting to the end some of them passed away mm-hmm. um, but I felt like I was grasping at a piece of history as it was being lost and and it, it gave me even though this was an older story a sense of the urgency and immediacy because with these people passing away this kind of remarkable story or parts of it would be lost and um, how long did you spend reporting the story? I would say uh, intensely, uh, you know, uh, with other interruptions and various things, but, you know, it took about a year.
1: Mm-hmm. And over the course of that year, are you working on other pieces? I mean,
2: yeah, I was sometimes working on other pieces and developing or other projects that I, I was going. Um, uh, this one, you know, it, it, this one took a while because um, if you witness event, uh, it's so much easier to write it, right? You know, if I if when I if I go out with a giant squid hunter, I can write those scenes pretty quickly. Um, yes you know, figuring out how they fit in. But you know, I'm, I'm, I was there. I, I I got all the dialogue and to to write the a piece of history like this in the way that I aspired to, or at least wanted to, or hoped to, where it had that immediacy of being there. The level of 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 diff, not difficulty, but just the time, energy to get the small detail. It just takes so much more, and you know to. to and you're cross-referencing so many different sources, so. Uh, you know even a battle scene uh a battle scene you know i i would cross reference everybody for their memories and then once someone would tell me something i would go back to the other person and say is this right is this right, right. and they said well and then and, and and by the end you start to get a complete picture but if had i been there it would have been really easy so you know where did the body fall uh how did the firing start what did you guys say to each other and uh, and i and i wanted. You, you, you try to like I say cross reference people especially when you're dealing with memories and so you want to make sure that everybody's memories is kind of checking out and that you and that by the end you really start to get you can you can do that but it's just the, there's a there's a you know just a time level that goes into that um, so you know even for example uh, and some of this stuff doesn't and always end up even in the piece but like if I have a CIA document. And it says they met somewhere. And I, I remember those documents. document. I don't think I ended up going into as much of the piece, but they, they met in the French room, I think it was called. And so I spent, you know, a couple of weeks trying to figure out what was the French room and I was talking to the people from the CIA who were actually extraordinarily nice, but they were, like, consulting their historians. What was the French room? Where was right, it? Right. And um, so, but those little details, uh, you know, just took t- 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 more time. And, you know, gathering letters, um, you know. The,
1: the, the letters in that piece, I mean, they... they... The, you can tell in the people that you talk to to. It's not just the anecdotes, but in the quotes and the stories, how vibrant a guy he was.
2: No, I so said when you get those letters, I mean they they just like for me, you know, you know you get a you get an element of it in her life that and 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 in such an unbelievable situation. And, and the same thing happened when I did the Willingham story. Um, you know, I, as I said before, I would have done the Cameron Todd Willingham, man who who who. Was executed in Texas uh, for a fire uh, that now many experts looking at the case just think it was just convicted on uh, on utterly junk science and on folklore and um, and one of the keys to that was um, to that piece was like how can I how do I get at this man how do I figure out who this person is and so what I did in that case was. I started to call all the people he knew, and it turned out he was actually a really, you know, I guess when you're in prison, I think a lot of people write a lot, they write a lot, there's not a lot to do, and he corresponded with a lot of people, including around different countries and around the world, people, and I started to go around and started to get a treasure trove of letters, and those letters were a way into this man's thought processes and... Um, feelings and and the evolution of his of his sort of time in prison I mean, that's yeah. There's ex, the, his ex,
1: psychology starts yeah. to change. And th- let's talk about. I mean, for anyone who's listening and has not read Trial by Fire, uh, you should really just stop listening and, okay. and go and read it. What was the genesis of that story? Did you hear about Willingham? Did you want to find a uh, a man who had been executed on uh, under I mean, dubious I, pretenses? I was
2: interested in a. I, I was interested. I always had the question: Was had anyone ever been Innocent who've been executed. So it was something I would always talk about and ask kind of people about. You know, sometimes you just have questions, and uh, one of the things I do with various you know people who might have knowledge. Sometimes I just call them up and ask them and just pick their brains on things. Mm -hmm. Um, But. I had spoken to someone about the w- w- Willingham case who had mentioned the the questions about how fire science had changed He said, you know, you, you might want to look at that. It's, it might be an interesting case. And um, But that story evolved in a way, again, I didn't imagine. I mean, I'm a real skeptic. And, uh, um, you know, when I first read the, the prosecution's brief against the guy, I just thought, well, so, you know. Oh, I spoke to his defense attorney, I think, and even his defense attorney said he was guilty. You right. I said, God, if his defense attorney says he's guilty, he's got to be guilty. <laughs> and then, of course, I, you know, that was a story that took many, many months. And... Um, uh, you know, by the end, again, things, you just get startled and you get surprised. I mean, when you, you know, I grew up, again, with thinking arson science was like these kind of, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Sue kind of come in the right. room, and they just could check out the cool flames, and they could say, you know, just again for the listeners, the the, the allegation was that Cameron Todd Willingham had woken up one morning, allegedly set a fire, um, that killed his three daughters. And he was the one survivor for the fire. And, uh, arson investigators had come into the house and basically looked at patterns on the floor and various things, and uh, said, "Oh, this was an intentionally set fire. Therefore, if it was intentionally set fire, he was the only one who would have done it." And so,
1: and the techniques they were using were the same techniques that have been being used for decades, for decades, and despite it, advances in
2: all other realms. In all other realms, and yeah. you re- and it really turned out to be. I don't. I don't even. I don't even think. I think at this point it's indisputable that the te- techniques used uh, to uh, convict this man uh, were based on utterly bunk. I mean, they were junk science. I don't. I think there's consensus now.
1: How that. long into the reporting did you realize that, or, or become convinced of that? I mean, was that was that the Traffic hand wiretap moment of that story.
2: I think in that story it wasn't one thing. I think that story was a process. Just a, it was a slow process, and um, and it was trying to understand fire fire science. I mean, I got a lot of tutorials. Yeah, and 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 also figuring out again. You know, you want to be really careful, and and so you you want to cross reference people, and you want to. You know, I'm not an expert in these things. I mean, you you you. I don't pretend to be. I mean, people sometimes would ask me questions as if I were an expert. I'm not an expert. I mean, I'm a reporter, and I report out to the best of my knowledge uh, and what the facts tell me at the time is the truth, or the best, or the closest approximation we can get to the truth. And um, and so you you start to figure out who are the most credible experts in the field, who are the people most respect. I mean, you and you go through a process, and 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 I think that's really important because. Um, you need to start to figure out who are the most trustworthy, who are the who are the smartest, who are the ones who their peers in the field say have impeccable credentials. Um, you want to know what people's weaknesses are and what are their strengths, so that you don't over rely. Mm-hmm. You never want to over rely on just one person on something like this, with it with the magnitude is so great. Um, but you know there were moments of of just astonishment in that case, and it had less to do in a way with the fire science because I had spoken to so many people who just said there's just a revolution in the way we determine arson now, and right. there was a fair amount of agreement. I mean, they, other than the people who fucked up the investigation, I didn't really speak to anyone who was like, this was a good investigation. Like, right. <laughs> I don't think anybody of knowing modern techniques of science, they, everyone, there was unanimity. I never spoke to anyone who was like,
1: you know, Those guys actually did a good job. Yeah, they
2: did a good job. I mean, again, and I, when I say fucked up the investigation, they were doing what they believed was right. I don't think these people were in any ways um, malevolent.
1: It's negligence, not no, malicious. No, yeah, I
2: don't think they were malicious. I think yeah. they thought they were doing their job to the best of their ability. So, But um, but there was moments of astonishment. And when I started reading through materials and then I found out, I started looking into some of the things. And then I, I saw that, like, no one could explain why this man just woke up one morning and just— Set his house on fire. Like, right. There's no, n- they never had a motive. No one could find a motive at the time, and so they brought in these people to say, "Well, you know, he's got to be a psychopath," which is true. If you just woke up one morning and didn't have a motive and lit your children on fire, you uh, have something's deeply wrong and
1: luckily the american justice system employs a bunch of psychopaths for hire yeah well, hire hours,
2: so they yeah. get the so they hire the people and they they this, you know well he had rock posters on his on his wall and heavy metal and he had uh, tattoos and they use these things to somehow like i think it was a it's been a while i think it was like a led zeppelin poster and uh uh, maybe it was Iron Maiden. I don't remember now, but mm-hmm. it, I think it was a Led Zeppelin. I was like Led Zeppelin. I mean, I had Led Zeppelin. A white dude in Connecticut had a Led Zeppelin poster. Right. I don't think that was. <laughs> I don't think it was like a devil worship thing. But they did this whole <laughs> devil worship thing, and 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 those elements where you're just like, God, and that was in the early 1990s. Right. I mean, really, like, I mean, that's just. And then it turned out that the peop, one of the guys who was making this these things like later was um, kind of cast out from the psychiatric canon because he had ethical issues and, and then there was another one who was actually not even, had no training in this background, I think he was like a family uh, right. again it's been, I'd have to go back and get details but but again you're just like, and so those elements I was there were moments of discovery and shock in that process where you're just like once I begin, like, I was like oh, okay I'll look into this guy's background and then I look into this guy's background I was like guy has no background in this field like he's he's being called to make these judgments it's going to lead to a man to be executed I was and 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 again usually with these stories I know almost nothing about the subject when I right. begin I didn't know anything about this stuff I you know a lot of people afterwards would say like you must have strong views on the death penalty you know and I said no you know I, I really I hadn't written about this before and I hadn't thought so much about it um I didn't. I mean, I I was I was shocked at how fallible the system could be um, at so many levels uh, after doing this research.
1: How immersed in these stories do you become?
2: Probably too much. I mean, I I um, you know I write about obsessives and I and I and I a lot of people write about obsessives and I I have a you know I
1: if there's any beat you're on it's the obsessive. Yeah. Man.
2: Well, I think, and I, I, I think for me, it's just I, I always want to know. You know, I just I always want to know. I always want to know more. I find both the field utterly satisfying, and always, you know, frustrating because, um, you know, there's just always some detail that's eluding me, or I yeah. want to get to the bottom of. So, uh, and I want to find, and you, and you just you, you want to get it. You want to know as much as you can, and. So you know I think you can you can oversell it and you know I think you can mythologize it and I, you know reporting isn't you know reporting is reporting you know it's not I think people want to mythologize this stuff and mm-hmm. it's fun um but I I want to do a good job I mean I think that's really it. I just want to do a good job I want to uh and and I think like all of us are you know I think I'm always you know, motivated by insecurities, like you, 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 you know, you don't, you want to make sure you get it right and do it right and do the best you can. So I think, um, you know, I think that kind of drives me.
1: Do you know when you're done? Does it feel done?
2: You, you do for the most part. I mean, you want to get to a point where the details that are eluding you are either details you are, you realize you're never going to know because you've looked into it and there's just it's impossible. Everybody's dead. There's no record. I mean, you know, you know, the, the CIA burned those papers. Whatever it is, you know, you just you're never going to get that document. It doesn't exist anymore, or something. Or um, the details that are eluding you are 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 insignificant in the scheme of things. There, they're, you know, might have been a nice detail in terms of the storytelling, right. but not in terms of the truth, the essential truth about what the story is trying to get at you don't always know all the answers i mean i think and i think that's what kind of makes life interesting i mean the, the thing that makes these stories real while they are in some ways unfathomable in ways but what also makes them real is there is a uneasiness um certitude um because there are things that are not always known and and there are elements of doubt and, and and that can be i think very haunting um you know i read a lot of detective fiction but i i think the reality of 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 Understanding the world and living with doubts and and um, you know is is very is very haunting and I think it can it can be I think in some of the stories um, you know again you get as close as you can to all you know and then there are parts that elude you
1: the stuff that's never going to get tied up.
2: It's just never going to get tied up and 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 um, yeah and I mean I think the um, you know one of the things too is. In, in these stories is people often ask me, in how you disclose information in a story too. I mean a lot of stories are write about our mysteries to some degree and they have an element of mystery. And and so stories unfold, right? I mean it goes back to the whole thing you said about the newspaper, the last graph. They would take my last graph and make it the first graph right. <laughs> when I write my newspaper story. And um in these stories you don't say at the very end at the first paragraph oh we didn't get the giant squid right, right. You, you let the process unfold right. but i think you are actually being more true to the way the world is and the because i'm not writing about myself i'm writing about characters making discoveries in time and making realizations and so when when those initial investigators investigate Cameron Todd Willingham they collect all this evidence and they are convinced this is the truth and so the twist when that begins to crack is actually how it happened when the when the ground shifts the ground shifts because that's the way it happened and even in the in the case of for example William Alexander Morgan um, watching people witness history and make sense of history as they live it is so much more interesting than coming in and and playing omniscient God, where okay, it's ten years later now I know everything. Um, these guys are idiots because they couldn't see it, or these guys and I can, you know, I can tell the story now in a different way than it actually happened. So I think one of the things that I hope or want to try to do in these stories too is by letting them unfold. It's not just the art of sto- storytelling; it's actually, to me. Trying to get closer to reality, which is damn murky and 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 filled with blind spots and wrong turns, and people doing their best at the moment with limited information, and so I tell those stories in time, and they unfold in time, and and so when the ground shifts, it's because it's shifting for those people in those moments, and that's the way it happened for them.
1: I could have kept talking to David Grant for a long, long time. I'm Max Linsky. Longform Podcast is also hosted by Aaron Lammer of Longform and Evan ratliff of The atavist It's edited by Lauren Kirschner. If you want to read any of the stories that I talked about with Grant, they'll be on the show notes at longform.org podcast. If you're looking for something entirely different to read, check out the latest piece from The Atavist or pick up Longform for iPad at longformapp.com We'll see you next week.